There is hardly a day that goes by that you can't pick up a, a paper or listen on the news and hear something about uh, Israel, what's going on in the Middle East, something related to Israel. In fact, there was a lot in the news this last week uh, having to do with that. And I'm not talking about the Old Testament nation of Israel, but the modern state of, of Israel. And as you read these accounts and listen to the news, does it ever cross your mind or raise a question in your mind, what is the connection with Old Testament Israel and the, the modern state of Israel today? What, what is that connection, or is there one? The Old Testament Israel, we know, was God's chosen people. God called them out of the land of Egypt. He constituted them as a, as a special people, as a nation before him, as a, uh, a kingdom of priests, as representatives him, of him in the world. Uh, we also know that time and time again, this people, this nation of Israel, this favored nation before God, rebelled against him over and over and over and over again. Until when we come into the New Testament, we see this people, the Jewish people, crucifying their Messiah and saying, we have no king but Caesar. Did God ever come to a point where he said, enough's enough, that's it. I have had it, it's over. Did God ever sever his relationship in terms of their Israel being the favored nation status? Did he ever end that with Israel? Well, history would certainly seem to indicate that was the case. 70 A.D., I mentioned this last week, the Roman um, legions marched into Jerusalem, and it was carnage. Tens of thousands of Jewish people are slaughtered. Reports were that 100,000 bodies of Jews were thrown over the, the walls of Jerusalem and another 100,000 taken off into, into captivity. Uh, there are estimates that maybe it was a million uh, Jewish people were slaughtered by the Romans uh, during that whole siege, during that whole time. Flavius Josephus, the Jewish historian, put it this way, it appears that the misfortunes of all men from the beginning of the world, if compared to these of the Jews, are really not so considerable. What they went through in 70 A.D. is almost... Um, unheard of. And then 65 years later, in 135 A.D., uh, the Romans did it again. Whatever vestige of, of Judaism remained after 70 A.D., uh, it was utterly and completely wiped out. 600,000 Jews were killed, and Palestine was basically totally rid of Jews after um, that whole cleansing by Emperor Hadrian in 135 A.D. Thousands of towns throughout Palestine were simply wiped out. And for the next 1,900 years, there were no Jews in the Middle East. They were absolutely cleaned out. Had the favored nation status of Israel ended... History would seem to indicate, indeed, it had. Except when you turn to the Bible. And you turn to a passage like in Romans chapter 11, verse 1. 
And the Apostle Paul asks that question, has God rejected or cast away his people? Has God rejected his people? In Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, uh, this is what Paul is addressing. He takes three chapters in the book of Romans, 9, 10, 11, he begins to deal with this thorny question about what happened with the Jews. Has God rejected, cast away his people? Now Paul's answer immediately is, may it never be. Certainly not, by no means. And he puts himself as exhibit A. He says, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. And he says then in verse 5, in the same way then there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. And indeed, thousands of Jewish people were turning to Jesus as their Messiah. They were coming to faith in Christ. Paul said, I am a classic example of that. I who persecuted the church, and yet Jesus met me, and he changed my life. And so Paul is saying, no, God has not forgotten his people, because thousands were coming to Christ. But he says something even far more fascinating at the end of Romans chapter 11. At the end of chapter 11, verse 25, he writes, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And then, so all Israel will be saved. And then he quotes from the Old Testament, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And so Paul speaks of a mystery. This mystery, he said, I don't want you to be uninformed of this mystery. What was that mystery? A partial hardening has happened to Israel. It's only partial. And it's only temporary until, and the indicator, the historical indicator is this little phrase that was also used by Jesus, by the way, in Luke's gospel, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, we're not going to deal with that, just it's one of those little interesting phrases. You have to study it on your own. But there's an indicator of time. A partial hardening has happened until there's an end point until the fullness of the Gentiles has been brought in. And then this mystery says, and then all Israel will be saved. Now, I realize there are godly scholars who don't hold to this particular view that I've just shared with you. Scholars that believe that when the Jewish people rejected Jesus as their Messiah, God did say, enough is enough. And in his sovereign plan, he replaced Israel with this new entity called the church, the body of Christ, where both Jews and Greeks, as they trust Jesus as the Messiah, come into this new entity, the body of Christ. And that is true, this new entity. But if we're reading Paul correctly in Romans 9, 10, 11, 
the church did not replace Israel. Israel was set aside, a partial hardening, and it's temporary. Israel's not replaced. And if we, as we said this before, as we are teaching through the book of Isaiah, you look at these Old Testament passages like the book of Isaiah, and if we take them at face value as what they say, just without spiritualizing them, just at face value, literally, then we also have to come to a conclusion God is not finished with this chosen people, Israel. Now, I think we see that in Isaiah 54. Take your Bibles and turn with me over to Isaiah 54 as we continue this study of Isaiah. Obviously, chapter 54 follows chapter 53, right? That's pretty, pretty basic. And what was chapter 53 about? Chapter 53 was that conclusion of those four servant songs that we looked at during the month of December, the servant songs, these, these uh, songs about a coming deliverer, the suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, the one who was pierced through for our transgressions, who was crushed for our iniquities. That's Psalm uh, Isaiah 53, the fourth servant song, focusing on the one upon whom our sins were laid. He was the one who was oppressed and afflicted, despised, forsaken. He was the one who was led to the slaughter like a lamb, like a lamb before cheers is dumb. He uttered not a word, and he died. He sacrificed his life to pay for our sins. That's what Isaiah 53 was talking about. And so when we begin the very next chapter, 54, the very first verse of Isaiah 54 logically begins with the words, shout for joy, sing for joy. O barren one, you who have borne no child, <clears throat> break forth into joyful singing, into joyful shouting, burst into song and cry aloud. We've just heard about the suffering servant who is going to pay for our sins and go to rise again all there in chapter 53. This amazing account of someone who's going to carry our sins upon himself, be pierced through, shout for joy, burst in song. Isaiah 54 begins. Chapter 54 and the following chapters of Isaiah flow out of this truth of 53. They kind of, uh, I think, communicate the, the impact of chapter 53. These are like the results of what we've read in 53. 54 and chapter 55 and on into the final chapters of Isaiah all take place because of chapter 53. There is no chapter 54 without chapter 53, and it all flows from that. Uh, by the way, that's why far more is involved in these prophetic writings of Isaiah than just what took place in the immediate historical setting of Isaiah, or that setting of about 150 years later when the Jews were held captive in Babylon. 
Now, this final section of Isaiah, chapter 40 through 66, is indeed being written to people who were in exile in Babylon some 150 years after Isaiah actually lived. He's writing prophetically to these people who have been deported and taken away into captivity under judgment of God by the Babylonians. He's writing to encourage them, but his audience, or God's intended audience, goes far beyond that immediate historical situation. And how do we know that? Chapter 53, the suffering servant. The suffering servant hadn't even come on the scene yet when the Jewish people are held captive in Babylon. You see, Isaiah had something, or God, through the prophet Isaiah, had something far beyond just that immediate historical situation. And so we come to Isaiah chapter 54 this morning. He's going to use three uh, metaphors to describe something that is going to happen to the Jewish people in the future. The first one is a fruitful mother. The second one is a forgiven wife. The third one is a fortified city. Look at verse 1 again. Shout for joy. Sing, O barren one, you who have borne no children. Break forth into joyful shouting and cry aloud, you who have not travailed. For the sons of the desolate one will be more numerous than the sons of the married woman, says the Lord. So, verse 2, enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Spare not. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your pegs. He's talking about their, their, their tent, their home. You're going to have to get it bigger. You're going to have a whole lot of kids. It's going to get a lot bigger. Stretch it out. Strengthen those tent pegs. Verse 3, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your descendants will possess or inherit the nations and will resettle the desolate cities. Isaiah is using this metaphor of a once barren woman who now will be prolific in having children. And she will have children upon children upon children more numerous than you can count. This is talking about the coming blessing that God will give to Israel. He views Israel as this barren woman that one day, someday, in the far future, everything will change. Now, in historical reality, ever since Isaiah wrote these words 2,800 years ago, and he looked through history, it's like, when did this happen for Israel? When did this happen? You can conclude it hasn't. We could conclude that Israel could still be viewed as a barren woman. But something is going to happen in the future. The nation of Israel, it says, will possess the nations. Something worldwide of impact is going to take place. The barren woman will become the fruitful mother. The second metaphor is the forgiven wife. Verse 4, fear not, for you will not be put to shame, neither feel humiliated, for you will not be disgraced, but you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood, and you will remember it no more. Verse 5, for your husband is your maker, whose name is the sovereign Lord, the Lord of hosts, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, 
who is called the God of all the earth. Here, Israel is pictured as a, as a, as a wife who has been living in shame, a reproach to her husband. In fact, Isaiah's contemporary, his fellow prophet who was writing to the northern people of Israel, Hosea was his name, wrote an entire book, Hosea, about this idea of, of Israel being an adulterous wife who left her husband and went after, prostituted herself. And God is the husband and he's agonizing over a wife that has left him. That's the picture here, but all of a sudden it changes. It changes because the husband is your maker whose name is the Lord of hosts, the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. In other words, what he's about to say, you can count on it because of who he's saying it. I am Jehovah, the Lord of all. And what has the Lord said? Verse 6, for the Lord has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your Lord God. Verse 7, for a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In, a, in an outburst of anger I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting loving kindness I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. These verses speak of Israel that was once viewed as a, as a, as a forsaken wife living in sin, now forgiven because of the compassion, because of the heart of mercy of Jehovah God. A day is coming when Israel will experience the compassion of God. Look at verse 9. For this is like the days of Noah to me, when I swore that the waters of Noah would not flood the earth again. Remember the story of Noah? And after the flood, God put the rainbow, and it was his promise, the Noah covenant. Never again will I destroy the world in a flood like this. That was God's covenantal promise. Well, God is saying, just like that, I'm going to do it to you. I've sworn it. Verse 10. For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you. And my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Over in the book of Ezekiel, something very similar is said. Ezekiel 37, 26 says, I will make a covenant of peace with them, it will be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. Or the prophet Jeremiah, he put it this way in Jeremiah 31, 35, and 36. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. This is what he says. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. If this fixed order, the sun and the moon, were to somehow fail, then my covenant with Israel will fail. The implication is, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. 
I made a, a covenant with Noah, and I promised I would never destroy the earth again. That was my promise. Well, I've made a promise to Israel, he says. And if the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you. My covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion. The forgiven wife. Someday, something is going to happen with the nation of Israel. And then the third metaphor, starting in verse 11, is this fortified city. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony, and your foundations I will lay in sapphires. The New King James says, I will set your stones or your, your colorful gems. The NIV uses the word turquoise, so different ways you can interpret that, antimony. Your foundations I will lay in sapphires. Verse 12, moreover, I will make your battlements of rubies, your gates of crystal, your entire wall of precious stones. God says, I'm going to rebuild. I'm going to rebuild Zion, Jerusalem, in glorious, glorious array. And verse 13, and all your sons will be taught, all your children will be taught of the Lord, and the well-being or the shalom, the peace of your sons, of your children will be great. Verse 14, in righteousness you will be established, and you will be far from oppression, for you will not fear. You will not fear from terror, for it will not come near to you. And if anyone fiercely assails you, it will not be for me. Whoever assails you will fall because of you. Verse 16, look, behold, I myself, I've created the smith who blows the fire, the coals, brings out a weapon for its work, and I have created the destroyer to ruin. I'm going to protect you. Verse 17, and no weapon that is formed against you will prosper. And every tongue that accuses you in judgment will be condemned. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication, their righteousness is from me, declares Jehovah the Lord. The city that was once in ruins is going to be transformed, stunningly beautiful. God's going to build this. It's going to be a, a, um, a place where the, the children of Israel, he says, all your children, all your sons, verse 13, will be taught of the Lord and find their shalom, find their, their peace. Again, in the book of Jeremiah, we read these words. This is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they will not teach again each man his neighbor, each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. They're all going to know me. Why? Verse 13 of chapter 54 of Isaiah, all your children will be taught of the Lord. They will all know me. I'm going to write my law in your heart. Now, this is a little bit different than what had been said in an earlier chapter, in chapter 48, verse 17. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, to succeed, who leads you in the way that you should go, if only you had paid attention to me. 
If only you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your well-being, your shalom, your peace would have been like a river. Your righteousness, like the waves of the sea. There was a time in Israel's history where they did not pay attention to the Lord over and over and over and over again. If only you would have paid attention. But in Isaiah 54, verse 13, God is saying this wonderful promise, all your sons, all your children will be taught of the Lord, and indeed their shalom, their well-being, will be great. Will be great. A day is coming. A day is coming when they will live securely. The following verses there in 54. Uh, if anyone fiercely assails you, it's not going to be for me. They're going to fail. Um, no, uh, you will be far from oppression. There's nothing you will fear. Verse 17, no weapon that is formed against you shall prosper. Israel will live one day in secure, sec- total security. It is what Isaiah had hinted at earlier in chapter 32 when he wrote, And the work of righteousness will be peace, and the service of righteousness, quietness, and confidence forever. And then my people will live in a peaceful habitation and in secure dwellings and in undisturbed resting places. Now again, folks, if we just take this at face value, as it is written literally, as we're reading here in Isaiah 54, there is a day coming when Israel and their children will be taught of the Lord and their shalom will be great. Because all of this, last part of verse 17, is the, the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication or their righteousness, it's from me, says the Lord. I'm going to accomplish this. So Isaiah 54 is speaking of a day that if you look over the last 2,800 years of history since Isaiah wrote those words, it it just hasn't happened yet. It's a coming glorious day when Israel is going to experience these blessings of God, of joy and righteousness and peace, shalom, of comfort like they've never experienced before. And upon what is all this based? Why would God do this to a stiff-necked, rebellious people that he has judged time and time again? Upon what is this graciousness based? Isaiah 53, the servant of the Lord who's going to come and pay for sins. Be the sacrificial servant, the gracious work of God himself. So let's go back to this central passage in this chapter 54, starting in verse 7. Right smack dab in chapter 54, we saw these words, starting in verse 7. For a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion or or mercy I will gather you. Verse 8, in an outburst of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting loving kindness, I will have compassion, mercy on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. Verse 10, for the mountains may be removed, the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you. My covenant of peace will not be shaken, 
says the Lord, because I have compassion, who has compassion on you. Now, there is a word that is used in those verses. It's one of the most beautiful words in the Old Testament, and it's used of God's relationship to his covenantal people. It's this Hebrew word, chesed, chesed. It's the word that is translated loving kindness, typically, everlasting love. It's a term that means an enduring, loyal, uh, determined love, a loyal love, a love that is true to his own word, his own covenant. It's an enduring love, chesed. It is used there in verse 8, with everlasting loving kindness, they will have compassion on you. It's used in verse 10, though mountains may be removed and hills shake, my chesed, my loving kindness will not be removed from you. Chesed. That is why the Apostle Paul wrote what he did in Romans 11.1. 1. Has God rejected his people? And the reason Paul could say, are you kidding? Perish the thought May it never be. Why? Chesed, loyal love, everlasting kindness, undeserved favor, graciousness. A partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And then all Israel will be saved. Why? Chesed, loyal love. That is the heart of God. Now, if we could take some time this morning and read through Hosea, like I said, his contemporary. God is telling Hosea, you you rebellious people, I should wipe you off the face of the world, but how can I do it? I love you, he said. I'm not a man, I'm God. And I keep my oath, I keep my covenant. Chesed, loyal love. That is how God responds to sinful people. It's in the heart of God of compassion and mercy. One day, the Jewish people will say, thou art my God, and God will say, thou art my people. And this is all born out of Isaiah 53. And we see the the whole impact of that flowing out of that in chapter 54 and 55 and, and all into the rest of the final chapters of Isaiah. You may not know the name Francis Thompson, but you may have heard of something that Francis Thompson wrote. He was born in England in 1859 to very pious parents, godly people. He went off to seminary and failed miserably bailed out of seminary, so he thought he'd try his hand in the medical world, and he bailed out and failed out of medical school as well. And he ended up in the streets of London, a drug abuser, um, living a decadent uh, life of debauchery. He was in the street. He was a vagrant in the streets of London until, in the sovereignty of God, providence would have it that his path crossed with a man by the name of Wilfred Maynell. Wilfred Maynell had a heart of compassion and mercy, and he met this man, Francis Thompson, and he carried him to his home, 
and he nursed him back to health, and he cared for him, and he got him set back up on his feet, strong and a a new man once again. And Francis Thompson rediscovered the heart of God through the heart of Wilfred Maino. And ultimately, uh, Francis Thompson became one of the most prolific uh, writers of England of poetry and prose. And that famous poem that he penned was entitled, The Hound of Heaven. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him. And under running laughter, upvisted hopes I sped and shot precipitated adown titanic glooms of chasm fears. From those strong feet that followed, followed after, but with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat, and a voice beat more instant than the feet. All things betray thee who betrayest me. At the end of the poem, he writes these words from the voice of God. Alack, thou knowest not how little worthy of any love thou art. Whom wilt thou find to love ignoble thee? Save me, save only me. All which I took from thee I did but take, not for thy harms, but just that thou might seek it in my arms. All which thy child's mistake fancies are lost, I have stored for thee at home. So rise, clasp my hand, and come. The hound of heaven. Who is worthy to be loved? Not you, but rise, clasp my hand, come home. The hound of heaven. It's a wonderful picture of the redemptive love of God. That reminds me of Romans 5.8, that while we were yet sinners, the hound of heaven sought us. He loved us. He died for us. Why? To pay the ransom price for our sins. To enter into relationship forever with unworthy, sinful people like you, like me to pay the purchase price demanded by a holy God. Peter writes it in 1 Peter, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold. You were redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, the ultimate suffering servant who died. And the price Jesus paid for our redemption, though terrible indeed, was sufficient. It paid for our sins. It did the job. And one thing is for certain, the hound of heaven will never let us go. There's far too much invested. Lloyd Ogilvie, the former U.S. Senate chaplain, put it this way, God will not let us go. His unbroken love from his broken heart 
will reach us in our sin, in our separation, even in our idolatry. He will topple our false gods. He will break our pride. He will melt our cold hearts. He will woo us with His love. But one thing He will never do is give up on us. And if there is ever any doubt in your mind about God's pursuit of you, read about Israel. A people who he should have given up on. And he doesn't. Paul struggled with that possibly, I think. It's why he wrote Romans 9, 10, and 11, these three chapters. He was going along fine in his book of Romans, chapters 1 through 8. Wonderful book about justification, of, of being justified and having peace with God and all the wonderful things that, that Jesus did for us. And he concludes in chapter 8 of Romans by saying, who can separate us from the love of God? Remember that passage? And he gives this whole list. Can tribulation and famine and nakedness and sword, can and life, death, angels, principalities, can anything separate us from the love of God? And the answer is, of course not. We are eternally loved by God. And then it's like the, the brakes are hit and he comes to a screeching halt. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. What about Israel? who crucified our Savior. What about the Jews? Can anything separate us from His love? Yep, it would seem like we've got a good example in Judaism. And he spends chapters 9, 10, and 11 in saying, has God rejected His people? <laughs> May it never be. He has made a covenant of peace. The mountains may shake, be removed, the hills may shake, but his chesed, his loyal love, will never be taken away. And it will never be taken away from you either. If you know Jesus Christ is your personal Savior, the wonderful good news is that there is this gracious God whose loyal love reaches even to us. You may be here this morning out of duress <laughs> or just out of a, maybe even a blankness in your spirit. It's the thing to do. But you know that your fellowship with the Lord that maybe was once there, burning red hot for him, is, has long since cooled. You know you have maybe been a real disappointment to the Savior who died for you. Folks, I've got good news for you. The hound of heaven will not let you go. Now, he will discipline you. He will spank you. He will do whatever it takes to woo you and draw you. But as Lloyd Ogilvy said, one thing is for certain. He will never give up on us. And if you have any doubts, look to Israel. Continue reading in Isaiah. Consider that God's love will never end. His pursuit of us will never cease, no matter what the circumstances of life. His mercy and grace will never run out. They're always larger than even our sinful heart. Do you know Him? Do you know this Savior? Have you come to that point where you have a, you've actually experienced the love of this God?
The Bible tells us it's undeserved because we're all born sinners and we're born enemies of God. But God demonstrated His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The suffering servant, Isaiah 53, took place. And He rose again and He offers the free gift of eternal life simply on the basis of believing it to be true. Faith and faith alone. Have you put your trust in Christ? And if you have, are you enjoying the everlasting loving arms of the hound of heaven? Let's pray. Our Father, we can get so caught up, I think, Lord, in the busyness of life, the daily routines, making ends meet, um, just trying to keep our head above water. And oftentimes days can go by, maybe weeks, maybe for some here today, maybe years go by. And we have forgotten the sweetness of your compassion, of your loyal love, the kindness of your heart that sent your Son to the cross to pay for our sins, to rise in victory, in victory to give us um, the power to live a life that is defined by your Son, Jesus, as abundant living. And it's just kind of gotten lost in all the craziness of life. We may feel like a, a barren woman a forsaken wife living in sin, a, a city in ruins. But Father, it's your chesed, it's your loyal love that woos us and calls us back to fruitfulness and forgiveness, to be beautifully rebuilt. This is our heritage as your children. It's from you. I pray, Father, that today we will reach out. We will once again embrace your grace and mercy, your loving arms. Live in power, in resurrection power for your glory. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.